Hello, everyone. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Uh, I'm joined by my tennis with an accent friend and colleague and analyst, Andrew Burton. And in an off-season special episode, we'll be talking about uh, Roger Federer, uh, his rise, his development years, uh, global superstardom, uh, tennis records, and his accomplishments. And helping us unpack, we have a special guest uh, who will, who's covered Federer professionally, uh, Simon Graf. He's a Swiss journalist working uh, for TA Media, uh, one of the biggest uh, sporting publications in uh, Switzerland. So let's not waste any time. And Simon, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. Hello, uh, I'm glad to be here on the show. Yeah, so like I mentioned, Andrew is our in-house Federer specialist as well. So uh, this only made sense for Andrew to join join me and uh, and talk to you about uh, Roger Federer, the player and, you know, his career. Uh, So before we get started, you have a book coming up uh, again uh, on Federer. Uh, It's been released in German. You're adding new chapters as an English version. So just talk about, you know, uh, when this book was set in motion and uh, what isn't there for a diehard Roger Federer fan? What can they find in this book? Yeah, thanks for uh, <laughs> this chance. Yeah, uh, um, I was contacted by a publisher, a Swiss publisher from Basel, actually, where uh, Roger grew up and in 2017. And uh, I, he, he asked me if I could do a biography about Roger and I wasn't so sure if I should do that because there so much has been written about Roger, and uh, I didn't want to do a like a normal biography start to finish. And so I asked him, like, can I do whatever I want? And he said, as long as it's a good book, and I trust you, you can write a good book. So what I did was I, I basically uh, uh, wrote sixteen essays or. Uh, independent chapters about Roger uh, in, in the English, in the English version that, and it's like a puzzle. And if you read all those chapters, I think the puzzle is, uh, is complete. So I, I've written about uh, uh, one chapter is about Mirka. One chapter is about the uh, hothead Roger. One chapter is about the birth of a champion. One about his parents. Uh, one about uh, his rivalry with, with Rafa. Uh, about uh, the admiration of uh, like uh, cult- people in the cultural world for Roger, about so so uh, about the athlete Roger, just like uh, different uh, aspects of 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 him rather than uh, just starting with uh, his childhood and going on until he wins Wimbledon, uh, etc. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. I. I uh, Published it in uh, German in 2018, and uh, in 2019 the English version came out with 16 chapters. And now, just a few months ago, we had a revised, uh, extended German version with 20 chapters. 20 chapters make sense for a guy who's won 20 Grand Slam titles. So uh, um, yeah, uh, it's it's just come out. Uh, uh, in uh, in the summertime, I had some time during the pandemic to 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 work on it, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I, I hope I've got I get great feedback for the for the book from Federer fans, and I hope uh, maybe some international Federer fans will get to know 
my book as well. Uh, no, I'm sure uh, Federer fans and tennis fans will, you know, uh, look at this book and uh, find, find, you know, the whole development process, you know, and with the champion he is. I'm sure it's a good read and I endorse it. But uh, uh, yeah, you, you covered quite a lot there. And uh, I was speaking with Andrew how we should approach this podcast. And the first question that comes to my mind is the impact of Federer uh, in Switzerland. And I want, to, I want you to look at the player development program in Switzerland compare it to the days when Federer was coming up uh, and to what it is now and what kind of impact the success of Federer and Wawrinka has had on Swiss program because uh, you put something like, uh, in, in, I think the chapter about his parents, that they were spending 30,000 uh, Swiss francs. And that's a lot of money, uh, I'm sure, like in early 90s. And I'm sure it's also a lot of money today. So talk uh, with that information, talk about, you know, how the program has evolved compared to what it was when Federer was coming up and what kind of support uh, Federer and other Swiss players get from the Federation? Well, interestingly, uh, Roger is a, is a product of the Federation, uh, you, you, you might call him, because uh, he, he went to the French part when he was uh, very young and uh, the tennis étude, it was called. Uh, so you, you go to school and you can play tennis. And that was uh, completely new. So Roger was one of the first uh, students. I think it was in the uh, it was in its uh, second year, and uh, was, they were basically just starting to uh, uh, s- starting to to get the professional structure for uh, young players. And uh, he really benefited from that. And I think he's very grateful. And uh, he he wants to give back to the federation. Uh, I think even more when uh, once his uh, career will be finished. Now they have much more money. Uh, nowadays they have a, an academy in uh, Biel, uh, in uh, in the in the heart of Switzerland, and uh, young players they they get uh, they don't have to pay that much themselves anymore if they are promising juniors, and they can. Uh, they can uh, stay at the academy and they can uh, train and uh, basically uh, they have professional, like uh, from 15 on, they have a professional structure. I don't think it is as, as good or as professional as in uh, the UK or in, uh, in France where there's much more money. But so the Swiss, what they do is they really, they, they kind of, they, uh, uh, do different uh, solutions for every player. So they just, uh, uh, one player might not feel comfortable be staying in Beal so he can stay at home and practice in his uh, local academy. Uh, another one uh, really needs to be there and in Beal so he can be there. So there's not as many talented players as in uh, bigger countries, but we're, I think they've been, they've been doing quite well lately. And there's a, a few young guys that uh, are promising, like Dominic Stricker, who won the juniors in uh, at the French Open uh, in the finals against his his uh, his friend Leandro Riedi, who is from uh, Zurich. So uh, it took quite a while, I think, to 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 really develop uh, young players, and now it's uh, it's 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 paying dividends. Uh, sure, I'll just uh, like to yeah uh, do a follow up, and I'm sure Andrew has uh, his set of questions uh, that 
this is how we're going to do this interview. So uh, this is interesting uh, about the Swiss Federation and, and the collaboration and impact. You know, the Federer is their product and now the legacy will carry on and he will give back. So the other follow-up question I had mine during his development years is uh, the role of his parents. And, you know, it's pretty well documented, you know, a lot of federal information out there. So uh, what kind of access you've had to them when you wrote this book? And uh, uh, let's shed uh, some information on development of Federer from a, you know, temperamental teen to, to the composed player. Of course, he's had his, you know, moments every now and then. But for um, for the most career, I think uh, he's transformed since that match against Marat Safin, which is again very well documented. So talk about his uh, temperament and you know his parents' role and how they transformed him, and share any funny anecdotes that you have uh, to elaborate these points. Yeah, I mean he he, he was very passionate uh, early on. Uh, he always wanted to be perfect on the tennis court and. Uh, he lost his temper quite a bit in his younger years. He even worked with a psychologist when he was a teenager, just for a few months. And uh, he just really needed to channel his emotions. And uh, I think the, w- w- I don't think there was one point that, like, it, that it made click. It was just a, a, a progress. And uh, his his parents always. Uh, they were always uh, upset when he, when he behaved badly on on the court because for them it was uh, like uh, in Switzerland you were supposed to behave a certain way like you you're supposed to <laughs> to to fulfill certain standards and they they were like they they were never upset when he lost the match but uh, they were upset when he really uh, didn't behave well on the court when he smashed his rackets and so and he did that quite quite a bit. Uh, there's one funny story that uh, Roger was. Uh, uh, his father drove him to a junior tournament in the in the mountains, and uh, he lost. And he was really upset still uh, when they were driving driving back uh, over a, a pass uh, in Switzerland, uh, and it was uh, there was some snow still up there. And uh, his father stopped the car, and Roger didn't know what what, what was going on, and he opened uh, the other door and uh, pulled him out and uh, just uh, pushed him into the, his, his uh, head into the snow to, to cool him down. So to really uh, show him that, that, that he should let go. And uh, there's been many stories like that. I think Roger needed, needed uh, all those lessons. Uh, but in the end, I think it was him who really realized uh, how he how he had to behave and uh, he he also couldn't lock lock his emotions he he had to he had to he had to have his emotions but he had to channel them and uh, I think the longer he was on the tour the more he he realized well if I'm going to behave that badly I'm probably not going to be the player I I would like to be and uh, like for many years he was he was basically uh, he was so cool on the court. Never, never, ever uh, showed what was going on inside. Uh, there were so many matches that he probably might have lost if he had shown any uh, weakness, but he didn't. And so that has become a big strength of his, like even even uh, his la- in his late years. Like he he's so uh, emotionally controlled and 
but when once he once the match is over once he's won a tournament or or lost the final you can really see how how, how much is going on inside like when he starts to cry or he's really an emotional guy and uh, i think it just needed uh, he just needed time uh to 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 the to become a professional player and maybe he he took a little more time than others like Leighton Hewitt, for example, who was number one at uh, such an early age, but uh, he did it his way. And uh, I think he, he was always himself in the whole process of developing, of becoming a champion, of being a champion. And I think that's why he's still, uh, still in the game. Yeah, there's a very famous incident in Federer's, what we can now think of as middle career, which was the Australian Open final in 2009 when uh, he played a five-set match uh, against Rafael Nadal, uh, who eventually won the fifth set. And uh, before uh, addressing the crowd, or actually while he was addressing the crowd, Federer burst into tears, Mm -hmm. which he'd actually done uh, three years before winning the trophy when he got it from Rod Laver. But uh, this time, uh, he 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 was in defeat, and there was quite a lot of attention paid to that. He kind of started a trend because Murray later on uh, kind of went the same way. What was your interpretation of, of of what actually happened there? Well, he was just uh, very upset. Uh, I think it was a big big chance uh, that he wasted. I think he should have won that that match. Uh, uh, Rafa had uh, had a, a really tough five setter in the semifinals, and uh, I think Roger should have been fresher. And uh, obviously, he wasn't in the fifth set, and uh, he was just very disappointed. And uh, it was too bad he he burst into tears because uh, he kind of uh, destroyed the moment for Rafa. I think there's been quite a bit of criticism for that, uh, which I understand, but. Uh, yeah, it's just how he is. He's he's a very emotional guy, and uh, when he wins and cries, everyone loves it. And uh, sometimes, I don't think he's a he's a great loser. Uh, I don't. I think he hates to lose, and uh, I think he's he's had to learn how to lose after being dethroned, after not being number one anymore. Maybe starting to lose more often. I think it's been a very painful process for him. I think um, even now, like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, I don't think he's a he's a he's he's a he's a very good loser because he he really hates to lose. He's always like that. He's always been like that. Even as a young boy, when he uh, played uh, soccer in the in the apartment with uh, against his mother or or whatever, and uh, maybe that that like that passion that drove him uh, drove him on. But one of the one of the chapters in your book, which I thought was 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 really interesting, was you you speak just of the pure love of tennis that he has, mm-hmm. and it's really the case that since about two thousand and ten or so, he he's not been consistently the number one player in the world the way that he was in uh, say between two thousand four and two thousand and eight two thousand and nine. So that love for the game and, and the enjoyment of participating at being at tennis tournaments, I, I think possibly takes the edge off, you know, having to accept losing a bit more often. 
Yeah, that's a good point. That's a it's a very good point. Uh, I, I I think it, it would have been easy to walk away from the game once he started to lose more often, but he he really crawled back. Uh, he against a younger competition and. Uh, he 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 solved Rafa after after he came back uh, after, uh, in two uh, in 2017, and he, he became a, a a different player, I think. And so so uh, I think that's probably his biggest achievement: uh, not backing down. I think it's easy to win if you're if you're by far the best player in the world. I mean, there's been years he, he could basically just stay back into on the court and play play a routine uh, match and and win and win a grand slam tournament and uh, i think what, what what makes him so great is that he he always came back and he never got discouraged and uh, he always looked for solutions against rafa against novak he had some other uh, tough losses as well so and i, I think you he really loves to play with that ball. I think he, when you when you watch him in practice, uh, for example, in uh, during Wimbledon, when you you can go to a wrong, uh, it's uh, like he 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 treats every ball differently. Like he has so much fun on the court. There's no routine, and uh, like to preserve that passion and that joy. For the game, after having played so many matches, after like be uh, spent so many hours on the court, is that's just amazing. I think that's a, it's a gift, but I think he also does well uh, preserving preserving that joy. Uh, sure. So I can come in again. Uh, uh, this is something I asked uh, even in the last uh, episode we had with Sasha Ozmo, who covers Serbian tennis. So I want to ask, what has been Roger's impact? Of course, you know we know his legendary status of 20 slams and not, and uh, weeks at number one, and you know so many Wimbledons. But what is the impact on the media coverage of tennis in Switzerland? Uh, how has tennis grown uh, because of him? I know he had Hingis and Mark Rosse before him, so it's not like tennis didn't have a presence in Switzerland. But how has the rise of Federer and then later on Wawrinka? helped uh, Swiss media grow and what's the coverage relationship uh, compared to say football and maybe another sport that occupies uh, more mainstream? Well, uh, I mean, Roger is, is, uh, is the greatest uh, like sportsman Switzerland ever had. So, so that's how he, he uh, that's, that's how it goes. Like he, he that there's um, nothing compares to him. I mean, maybe, if the football or soccer team uh, won the world championships, maybe, but uh, like he's, he's so big. Uh, uh, and uh, I think there was a period of time when, when people got used to him winning, when they were maybe a little bit bored, even like they thought, well, it's, it's normal that he wins. And then when he, he started to lose more often and people got more, even more attached to him because, because he was a, he was not the favorite anymore, and he was he was uh, trying to to crawl back, and uh, and uh, he, he became more more human, and uh, like uh, even like after his comeback, uh, 2017 Australian Open, uh, people were going crazy in Switzerland, which is uh, doesn't happen very often. So uh, I mean, he's the biggest sportsman we've ever had, and uh, I. I <laughs> 
it's been a privilege to to write about him and uh, lately i think he he's be, he, he's become even bigger like if i write a story about roger we wrote a story about him maybe not being uh not being uh ready for the for the australian open because we we talked to some people uh, who saw him play or practice uh, rather and uh i mean the, the so many so many people read this and so many people uh gave their comments so so i think right now he's he's as big as ever and i think that's probably true globally as well because people know he's not going to be there he's not going to be around for for many more years so they really have to they really cherish that he's still there still trying to get back sure uh, another anecdote I want to take from the book again, this is not more on press, but uh, you said something uh, in the chapter about Merka that she's not uh, universally liked by Swiss people. Uh, so how has the, that relationship been projected in the Swiss media and how has the importance of Merka uh, been universally accepted by media compared to what you know some fans may think? Well, I, I don't think she was uh, portrayed badly in, in, in the Swiss media. It's just um, um, she, she, hasn't, she hasn't given any interview for like 15 years. So she, she's been in the background. So you don't really know what's like, what, what, her, what, what, what she, she thinks or what, what, I mean, you, you can presume, but uh, so, and if you, if you don't, uh, um talk uh, like people they just make assumptions you know so if she she wears a, a expensive uh, sweater at the uh, australian open finals or semi-finals like that's what people talk about you know and uh but i think there's it's been a big misconception of her role i think she's been absolutely crucial for for roger because she was a she she was a tennis player herself and and she wasn't as talented as as Roger obviously but she really really tried hard and I've talked for the book I've talked to the her former coach and and he was really impressed by her work ethic and her determination when she, when she was young and uh, I think she's uh, really helped Roger become more professional and uh, max out his his potential and uh, like she then she's she 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 managed the family so well and uh i think nowadays she's much more liked than maybe maybe uh 10 years ago i think nowadays people really realize how 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 important she's been for roger's career but uh yeah it's it's like it's too bad she hasn't talked uh uh publicly uh in i think last 15 years Someone else who's been extremely important to the evolution of Federer off the court, one could say, is Tony Godsick. Um, because you, you go back to 2004, 2005, very little business presence for, for Federer. Mirica was managing him at the time. He mm -hmm. had a, um, an aftershave, I think. But then when... He started working with Godsick, and Godsick you know, took him on just as a pure individual client. They really built a brand. You have a chapter on it, and and I think that aspect to 
to Federer's career, I've talked to people and said you could write a Harvard Business Review article on the way that Godsick and, and Federer sort of structured promoting him um, off court, making him a brand ambassador. Can you talk some about that? Um, yes, I mean, you're right, but uh, I, I think Roger is, a, is, is almost an ideal sports figure because he, like, there, there haven't been any scandals. He, he, he was, from early on, he was very much aware of the role of the media and, and, uh, like he, and he's very well liked. I think he's very, um, he, he behaves himself extremely well. I mean, there, there's no, uh, uh, he, he's, I think he's just a, a perfect sports figure, you know, to, to market. And Tony Godzik is a great, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a great business businessman and, uh, he's, he's pretty tough too. I mean, I think he's, uh, he's, um, uh, he really maxed out. He, he really made sure sure that Roger uh, got the best contracts he he could, uh, and um, I, I think Roger is just um, also off the court is is an extra ex, extraordinary figure, and uh, I think he's grown as well. I mean, he he, he just. Um, like there's no nothing, uh, no missteps off the court, and uh, I think it's easier, you know, to to manage Roger uh, as opposed to let's say uh, Alexander Zverev, who's been a, a newly acquired uh, um, player by by Tony Gotzik and uh, a teammate. Yes, it'll be very interesting going into twenty twenty one to see you know, whether they continue that relationship and whether there's a, um, you know, any, any more developments, but uh, staying with, with Federer for, you know, because it's the, the subject of this podcast. Mm-hmm. One other thing that, that I found really interesting was, you know, his influence on what you can think of as male tennis fashion the way that he he began to introduce different kit lines he had a um you know a, when he was working with nike uh he he would just have the the one kit line for for himself uh, and i've been on courts playing against people wearing federer kit and thinking you're not quite as good as as the man that you're uh that you're you're representing here but he also introduced night and day kit at uh, the U.S. Open and the Australian Open, the uh, the RF cap and, and and the logo. So you know, real really different ways of 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 thinking about tennis and and his impact on tennis. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I mean, he, I don't think he was a fi- fashion icon when he when he uh, hit the tour as a as a teenager. You you might uh, like with his long hair and uh, kind of uh, dimples, and so he was like a, a regular teenager. Um, I, I think uh, meeting uh, Anna Wintour was was uh, was very important uh, in in that respect, and also Nike really uh, realizing the potential Roger has with the different uh, kits, uh, with the uh, special. Uh, outfits for Wimbledon every year uh, with the like the, the uh, 
and I think he started to to really like it. I, I think he's a he's more of a casual fashion guy in, in, in uh, normally, but but I think he likes to to wear a suit, and I think he started to to like the this aspect of the of his uh, of his role in the, in the spotlight more and more. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it must be must be interesting or must be must be fun to be to be uh, not not only uh, not only the best tennis player but also the what was he the the, the most fashionable uh, person in the world or something like that so so uh, i think he grew into that role and uh, he's so versatile i think he can grow in almost any role so and uh, he i think he's really started to like the the fashion part of it and uh, uh, he might uh, develop that even further when he now with with Uniqlo, maybe after his career. I'm sure there will be different uh, outfits uh, off the court for Roger as well. Okay, so let's make a transition. I think what Andrew just uh, mentioned here, Federer's uh, fashion appeal and you know his collaborations with Nike and now Uniqlo. I want to touch upon something in Federer the brand and how it translates to the tennis coverage where you come in or the journalism, uh, you know, traveling journalists, sorry, come in. So you start the book off with 2013 when Federer was having the back issue. He's lost uh, to Stakowski at Wimbledon. Then he comes to Hamburg after so many years and has a quick exit, losing to German Daniel Brands, but then follows the huge demand of media, both, uh, I'm sure, English and Swiss German or maybe even French. So that happens, you know, with most Federer tournaments. Uh, I've only seen Federer in Miami and Montreal in, in the press room. And yeah, there is, after English, there's, you know, uh, uh, the Swiss German or French interviews. So my, my question is, with the brand and his uh, commitment and his growth in a global, uh, you know, in a global brand, how has that uh, affected uh, his access to folks like you and uh, you've got the best seat in the house. You've seen him evolve. So talk about uh, from that perspective, uh, how Federer's access has been impacted and good days and bad days. And uh, if there's a media story you would like to share uh, while you elaborate uh, this point. Yeah. I mean, Rod, it, it was actually in, in Gstaad where he lost that um, uh, match against uh, Daniel oh. Bronson in, in Switzerland. In the... Not Hamburg. <laughs> Not Hamburg. It was in the Swiss... <laughs> Swiss mountains actually, and yeah. it was a, it was a, it was a big thing. They even gifted him with another cow, and uh, they were so uh, happy he was back in, uh, in Switzerland. And uh, but he knew he wouldn't be at one hundred percent. And uh, I saw him warm up on, the, on the courts of the Palace uh, Hotel, up in the mountains, and and it was it was it was a terrible sight. I mean, he could hardly move, and uh, he he. He he lost in 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 straight sets against Daniel Bronze, who is not a who is not is not is not a not a great player. And after that, he, uh, I was impressed by how he behaved himself in the press room because he like he didn't really want to talk about. Uh, he, he just wanted to leave, and uh, he was there, and uh, people were still excited to see him on uh, on that on that stage. And uh, so so he got so many questions in different languages about his back and how it's going to continue, et cetera. And he didn't know himself because he was hurt and he, he didn't know if he, if it was getting better or not. It was a difficult year for him, but still like he, 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 
he stayed there for uh, almost half an hour and uh, answered all the questions. And afterwards, he like there was some meet and greet, and uh, he did that as well. And uh, I mean, uh, that was just uh, very impressive. I think I I would have uh, in his shoes, I would have left uh, right away. And he, I think, he realized uh, well, people were so excited to see me here in, in Stad in Switzerland. So I have to give back, even though I couldn't, uh, I couldn't play tennis on the level I would love to. So, uh, and that shows how, how he, how he's aware of his role in, in, in the tennis world. And um, I mean, there's so many, uh, so many uh, stories that, uh, different journalists from different countries share, shared with me where that, that he, 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 like he, he remembers them even after one interview and says hi and he remembers the name. And so he's very, uh, he's, ve he, he's very much aware of the, of his role or of his uh, relationship with the press and what it means to, to his uh, global popularity for us. Um, I mean, of course, he's a superstar. I, I don't get to call him uh, uh, on a daily basis or anything, but uh, I mean, uh, I, I, uh, he doesn't behave like that. Uh, for example, I, I met him um, last year uh, after the French Open. Uh, we'd both been there. Uh, he lost in the semis against, uh, against Rafael Nadal. And uh, three days after we... We we met at the indoor pool uh, in my where I live at the place where I live, and he brought his two daughters to swimming lessons, and I had just been swimming with my with my daughter, so he was hanging out there uh, waiting for his two girls, and uh, so he sat down at at my table, and we we just chatted for an, chatted away for an hour, and uh, it's just so uh, relaxed, and uh, just so uh, he, he's just uh, stayed. So, so much down to earth, you know, and that's uh, that's really good to see. I mean, uh, I'm sure it must be. I don't think we can even imagine how it is to be in his shoes uh, when people are screaming when you're walking <laughs> when you're walking around and stuff like. And he's still uh, he's been able to kind of block that out and stay uh, quite normal. This year has been more difficult in terms of availability for us for the media because he. Uh, he doesn't really know where the where the journey is going to, like where the journey will take him to. He, he doesn't know will he play again, will he play again on the level he'd love to. So uh, he didn't give any interviews, and uh, he was very very quiet. Only did the uh, PR things, and uh, that's because he doesn't want to say, doesn't really want to talk about uh, like uh, where is he at now with will, with his knee where, will he be back will he win uh, more grand slams i think he just wants to to have his uh, peace and find out uh, where 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 it will lead him to sure uh so i have one more follow up question again uh, this is with uh, when players become superstars and this applies to everyone federer you know djokovic murray nadal uh, all the big names in the game uh, it's also a business relation how they go and play these tournaments. So Federer's hometown tournament, uh, the Basel, his success is you know well documented. Fans love him, but uh, from where we see uh, the relationship with the tournament administration, especially Roger Brunwald and the team, has has been maybe not all good, maybe strained. So while you covered 
uh, Federer and Basel. How do you see that relationship over the years? Or is there uh, some truth to that, that the relationship wasn't as good in the last few years? Uh, shed some light on that because, you know, Federer fans always look for more information. And that's the part I wanted to explore with you, his relationship with the Basel authorities. Uh, yeah, the relationship was uh, strained, uh, to say uh, to say the least. Uh, it was more a problem between uh, uh, Tony Gotzik and uh, Roger Brenwell, the tournament director, because um, they, it's, it's always a question of money. If, 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 <laughs> if there's uh, conflicts like that, and uh, I think uh, Tony Gotzik just wanted the, the normal... Uh, um, the normal sum for for him to uh, appearance fee, and uh, Roger Brainwald thought, well, he's a hometown boy, ho, so he should maybe give us a little bit of a reduction. And uh, Roger didn't really want to interfere. I think uh, that's what usually he lets uh, Tony Gotzik do the the business part, uh, and uh, so so the relationship was strained for one, two or three years, and. Uh, Roger, in the end, resolved it. He said, you know what? I'm going to play until the end of my career, and I don't want any uh, appearance fee. So that was basically it, and the whole thing was resolved. And nowadays, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they talk to each other. I don't think his, uh, the relationship is with the tournament director is as it was before, but, but it's, uh, it's okay, and Roger knows he he will always have he, he he will always want to play in Basel, of course, in in front of his hometown fans. I mean, he would never not do that because of the money. But uh, uh, he like he's being managed uh, very well by Tony Gotzik, and I think that was the the problem in this in this case. It was just all all about money. So I, I think one of the things that you know we've been dancing around we've talked a little bit about this past year and 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 how tough it's been the recovery from the second surgery and you know trying to see if he's potentially going to be ready for the Australian Open I think if you'd have asked me or maybe you 10 years ago was Roger still going to be competing in Grand Slams when he's nearly 40 that people would be saying that that's that's crazy talk and yet he has been but we're now, you know, looking ahead to the next decade. He's not going to be playing in 2030, I think. So if you think about the next few years and then the years after that, you know, what would someone reading your book say, okay, Simon prepared me for this. Some of the insights I got from reading Simon's book prepared me for how Roger's approaching perhaps the last stage of his career and then the, the, the post-tournament uh, career? I don't think I can prepare people for that. Uh, I, I did an interview with uh, uh, Stanford professor uh, Hans-Ulrich Gumbrecht, a German guy who's, who's lived in the States for uh, over 30, 35 years, about uh, the, like, how, he, how he views uh, Roger. I, I did that for my, my latest uh, edition in German. And he he said he has no consolation for the fans. Uh, there will be even even if Roger stays in tennis after his career, uh, it will not be the same, and uh, there it will be like a, a death so, somehow because the the figure the the, the active figure play, the tennis figure playing actively, Roger Federer, 
uh, will not be there anymore. Like, uh, and there will be not, uh, there will not be another Roger Federer. So I think it will be very tough for people to to deal with. Uh, I think we've had a foretaste in this year because he only played uh, the Australian Open. Uh, so uh, there is life after Roger in in tennis for sure. But uh, uh, I certainly hope that he he'll have one or maybe two more years uh, in in him. But uh, you, you you never know. Uh, I doubt he's going to play the Australian Open. I I think he's not going to take any chances. I think if he doesn't feel uh, that he can. Uh, Make the second week. Uh, I don't think he would. He will. Uh, he will play at the Australian Open and rather uh, focus on uh, the summer with uh, Wimbledon and the Olympics and the U.S. Open. I had thought that. Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about Basel already in the tournament. There, I've always thought that 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 is the place that he will want to. Um, to let people know that, the, that it's time. And I don't know if it'll happen in 2021 or later. He's obviously still trying to promote the Lever Cup. Um, but yes, I think that there's, there's maybe 18 months or maybe less. Who's to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we don't know. I don't think Roger knows himself. Uh, I mean, I... I, I I know he's uh, he's far from where he would love to be right now uh, in terms of uh, form, uh, tennis-wise, and uh, I think he wa- he'll only go go back get back to the court when he really feels he can he can play at a certain level. Uh, I don't think he it's so important for him where he where he steps away from the game. I, he, when we when I met, when I did an interview with him after he won uh, the Australian Open 2017, I met him up in the mountains in uh, Lenzerheide, where he is uh, his second home. And uh, he said, like he said, my career has been so um, uh, corny, like it, uh, everything has been so uh, so amazing. I, I don't need a, a, a corny finish or, or like a. a, a it doesn't matter how how it will happen. Uh, it will happen sometime, and maybe maybe it will happen just from from one day to another, or maybe he will announce he will step away from the game in Basel. Maybe, but I don't think it's uh, it's important for him uh, where he where he steps away. Okay, sure. So I think we covered quite a lot. So what we can do here is, Simon, the floor is yours if you want to talk about anything that we didn't cover uh, about Federer or the book or his career that you have the most joy or the most professional uh, courtesy that, you know, you owe it to his fans. So if you want to just talk about anything as a concluding remark for this podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been a huge privilege to cover Roger. I I started to to cover uh, tennis in uh, the late nineties and uh, my first Wimbledon was 2002. I was a young reporter and uh, we had I had a center court seat in Wimbledon. I was very very uh, proud. I Roger had won uh, <laughs> had won against uh, Pete the year before, and we were expecting him to to go all the way or just uh, play a very very good tournament. And uh, so I, I, I first time uh, center court of Wimbledon in 2002 for the 
first round match, Roger against Mario Ancic. And it was over within 90 minutes. And uh, Ancic won in three sets. Roger had no chance whatsoever. I just, uh, I went back to the, to the press room and I was completely devastated. And I thought, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good start to my Wimbledon career. <laughs> but there's been uh, so many uh, amazing, amazing uh, years and uh, so many amazing memories. And uh, I, yeah, I, I think Roger hasn't really changed too much in all those years, which I, I think is really, re- really remarkable. I, I, I talked about meeting him with my uh, older daughter, who was seven at the time, at the indoor swimming pool. And um, we were talking and for her, it wasn't so, so interesting all the time. So he always included her, asked her lots of stuff, like where, if she likes to go swimming, if she likes uh, skiing, like his, uh, like his girls. So he, I think he's a very, uh, he has a very good feeling, a very good, he's, he's very sensitive. He, know, he, know, he knows how to deal with people and he knows, uh, I think that's his, his, uh, his, maybe his biggest forte off the court that he just uh, he wants to be with people and and he he loves to chat he loves to have fun and he's just being himself uh, on as well as off the court that's why he's he stayed uh, on tour for for so many years and um, i think he's changed the atmosphere in and the tennis tennis world and uh, Everyone tells me when he's in the locker room, he's so relaxed and he talks to everyone and he just, uh, he, like, he behaves, uh, it's just, he behaves like, uh, he, 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 I don't think he ever uh, has to um, pretend something. I think he's just uh, himself and that's, uh, uh, that's, why, that's why he enjoys being on the t- so thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoy the special edition with Simon Graf. This is Saqib and Andrew signing off, and we will be back with another episode in a week's time. Uh, happy holidays from, uh, to everyone from Tennis with an Accent, and thank you very much, Simon Graf. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, and uh, stay safe, everyone, during these uncertain times. <laughs> <laughs>